All right. Good morning, church. Okay, I know that this has been like a seesaw of standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down. Would you stand with me as we read today's scripture? (laughs) I didn't say that you needed the exercise. Okay, I'm just saying. It's good. It's good. All right. We're actually going to be reading uh, two passages. The the, the scripture text for today is Genesis chapter 1 and Luke chapter 10. Um, Let's start with chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, said Jesus. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, a priest, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed him on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're in a series called Imago Day where we're talking about how when we see that we are created in the image of God, it changes everything. Everything that we see is impacted by that truth. And, and we actually, today, we're, we're talking about something that probably should have gone before the service where we talked about tolerance and how as, as Christians, we're not called to tolerance. We're called to actually do something harder and more difficult uh, than tolerance, which is to love. I mean, simply tolerating someone, that's fine for anyone to do, and I hope that people in our culture tolerate people, but as Christians, we're called to love, which is much more difficult than tolerate. And so this is actually the prerequisite to that reality. This actually goes to a much more fundamental and primal level, which is the fact that every heartbeat, if we, as created an image of God, we believe that every heartbeat and breath is sacred, that it's sacred, that there's something like precious and valuable intrinsically. Um, And today we're going to be talking about through Jesus's way, the why and the way of this. In other words, if we wanted to kind of summarize it, if you take the Bible seriously, and let me just pause there. I'm not assuming that we all do, okay? Um, You may be here and you're like, dude, I don't even take faith seriously. I am here because I'm dating this girl and this is a really good move for me. 
okay? If that's you, I'm so glad you're here um, because because your girlfriend's right. But on top of that, I, 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 wanted, I want you to, I want to encourage you with the fact this is a good place for you to ask questions. And, and if you don't take the Bible seriously, I'm hoping that you're here so you get to see what this is all about. But this is specifically to those of you who actually believe this. Because I believe this, if you take the Bible seriously, you have the most resources to dignify the lives of all humanity and the strongest motivation to advocate for all life. And we see the first of that, and we're going to be looking at this through the why and the way, as I said, but the why, why is everyone valuable? Why is that such a big deal? Is found in this parable that Jesus tells. Okay, this is a parable of a story where, a story where we see that um, there's this road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a real road. You could like map quest it, okay? You can go over there to Jerusalem and actually walk down this road. This was, was, was one of two ways that people from the south would actually get up to go and make their sacrifices. And so like there's one primary, like if you go from the Dead Sea, there's one main way. And that's the way if you go on one of the Israel trips, you go that way because it's safe. And then there's the other way, which is more sketchy. And that way is, is the way that has all these canyons. And just to visually, to help you understand what it looks like, you remember episode four of Star Wars? When R2-D2, this is serious, R2-D2 and C-3PO are walking through where the Jawas jump them. Remember that? Where the Jawas jump them, that's actually in, in Southern California, but the ter terrain and the territory of that looks identical to this particular valley, this particular canyon road that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. And this was, and, and, and violence happened there. It's, it was so, I mean, when Jesus is telling this story, it would be akin to like me saying, the story like, hey guys, last weekend there was violence in the south side of Chicago. Not a single person here would say, oh, never. In the south side of Chicago there was violence? I've never heard of such a thing. No, everyone who watches the news knows that violence happens in Chicago and it's, it's something that happens all the time. It's very sad, right? In this particular time frame, Jesus was basically saying, so there was this violent act that took place in this canyon road. And everyone's like, yeah, that happened like last Tuesday. I know this to be true. And so this is something that's very common. And Jesus is talking about, the, he's trying to help them understand who matters, whose lives count, who, where, where do you put the value on people's life? And, and the person who's talking to Jesus, trying to justify himself says, okay, so who, who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to love God. I know who that is. Who's my neighbor? Because the Hebrew definition of neighbor, that word, would have come down to those in my crew. Those in my tribe, my people group, they're not the Romans, not the Samaritans, not foreigners or, or religiously like pagan. It's our people. I'm supposed to love my friends. My friend, my neighbor is my friend. And um, bluebible.com, uh, which focuses in on the Greek of these passages, talks about how Jesus redefined what neighbor was. He takes it from being someone who's one of your tribe, one of your race, one of your faith, and he switches it. And it says this, according to Christ, any other man, a neighbor, is any other man or woman, irrespective of nation or religion, with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. We happen to come across that it's any one of those people. And so what we see in this parable, what Jesus is trying to communicate is there's a reason why we value people. And it's that every human being without exception has been given a heartbeat and breath by God. So their value stems from God, not from the majority, not from the, the, the superior race, not from, not from the people who happen to be in charge politically. Their value is not ascribed by another human being. Human beings can't do that. Their value comes straight from God. And so no matter who they are or what they can bring to the table, like um, 
help the society or culture. None of that matters. Their value is intrinsically theirs because it's given by God. All of our breath, all of our heartbeats are given by God and taken by God. So what Jesus does in this passage is he stacks the deck. He stacks the deck against the odds of this person actually being the one who's going to treat this fallen Jew in the story, the guy who gets beat to a bloody pulp in that canyon, he pits the odds against the Samaritan by having two religiously like poster children for morality be the first people who walk through. And what we see is that what, what do they do when they, they see him? What, what does the priest and the Levite both do? Simon, what do they do? Yeah, they pass by to the other side. So they take notice of this guy. They see him. They recognize, okay, this guy's in a bad situation. And they go to the other side of the road and ignore the need, even though he's one of their own kind. And this is, this is the, the thing that everyone in the crowd listening to Jesus' story, they're thinking he's going this direction. They're thinking he's going to land on, how dare you? How dare we not take care of our own? We're Jews. We're Hebrews. We've got a great culture and history, and we've got a history of oppression. We take care of our own. How could this priest and this Levite do this? And everyone in the crowd went, amen. They would have loved that. But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually shows these two guys as not only the bad guy, but then all of a sudden he introduces a Samaritan. And whenever Jesus introduces a Samaritan into the story, you could just hear the crowd going, oh, we don't like them. These guys are religiously, ethnically, culturally opposed to us. We got beef with them. They are the low class, low race, low culture, low faith. We don't want them. Like if you see a Samaritan, you spit at them or you walk away. And so Jesus stacks the deck against those guys being the hero, but every time the Samaritan comes out to be this hero, it's amazing. I love it. And so all of a sudden we have the Samaritan doing something totally unnatural because what we have is this. In verse 33, it says the Samaritan saw him. And the word comes from the word Ido. And Ido is, is just another word of taking notice. Like it caught his attention. His ADD went off and he sees that this guy's been beat to a bloody pulp and he, and he sees him. Now the other guys, they Idoed too, right? They all took notice of him. They just responded diametrically opposed to what the Samaritan did. When the Samaritan Idoed, when the Samaritan took notice, he saw something those other guys didn't. Worth. And it wasn't because he had a lot in common with him. It wasn't because they agreed politically. It wasn't because they came from the same family line. It was actually all those things were the opposite. The worth that Jesus is trying to communicate, this guy seeing, was intrinsic to the fact that that was a human being. Not because that guy would have done the same thing for him, because he probably wouldn't have. The Samaritan took notice. And Jesus is communicating, this is my, this isn't a new thing. If you look through our own scriptures, we see this. Genesis 1 talks about that we're created in the image of God. But if you go beyond the Genesis 1, you get to Genesis 12. We're Abraham. And we all love Abraham. Everyone's like, Abraham. We all love Abraham. And God chose a tribe and Abraham was going to be the leader. And when he chose this tribe, he didn't say, I'm choosing you. You're my chosen people. And I just can't wait to not show favor on everyone else, just you guys. He doesn't say that. In Genesis 12, he tells them that they're going to have a positive effect on every other tribe of people. That for them, that for the Hebrews, he was going to bless them so that they could bless all other kinds of people, people outside of their race and their faith. That that was going to be part of their, what they're going to do. 
God communicates a lot of wrath in the Old Testament, and people think that God's angry in the Old Testament. He's super lovey-dovey in the New, but it's the same God, okay? And the thing that we need to see when we see God's wrath show up in the Old Testament, it's wrath that comes by way of long periods of patience. God is not rushing to judgment like someone who's just unhinged and needs his Prozac. God is someone who exhibits amazing patience. God's wrath against humanity comes after great patience, sometimes after hundreds of years. He puts up with tons and tons of years before the flood, before the conquest of Canaan where where Joshua and and all those, that, that small band, the minority group who are outgunned, outmanned, actually invade Canaan and take it over by taking over the military outposts and cleaning house. That was God's judgment against the inhabitants of Canaan. God's judgment that came after 400 years of his patience. He wasn't rushing in there just like crazy. He was 400 years of patience. I don't have 400 seconds of patience. We see God communicating his incredible love and value of humanity in that. When we get to the temple system, it's not just a temple that's this awesome Jewish shrine just for the Jewish people. In fact, Isaiah 56, 7 says that this is going to be a house of prayer for who? All the nations. Not just you guys. All throughout the Old Testament, this continues to get bad at home. In fact, in the second temple, right when we get into the New Testament, Herod builds this amazing, phenomenal temple. And what does he put in it? A co- built off of this verse, a court for the Gentiles. So the Gentiles will get a chance to have a front row seat to see what is it. It's not keeping them out. It's like, listen, you can't go all the way in here because this isn't your story. Not yet. You're not, you're not someone who has put your faith in him yet. But... We want you to have a front row seat to this because this is for you as well. Which brings us right to Jesus. God who became man and walked among us, all of a sudden Jesus walks into a world where culturally you're not supposed to touch the people who are diseased. You're not supposed to talk to women. You're certainly not supposed to associate with foreigners. And Romans are the bad guys that should never, ever, ever, ever have anything good be done for them. And this Jesus breaks every single one of those rules. He touches the lepers. He actually engages with kids who are the lowest rung of society. He goes and he talks to Samaritan women. And he actually heals the daughter of a Roman centurion, the bad guys. Jesus basically says, everything that you guys are doing culturally is backwards. I, who am God, am here to unwire and unwind this perspective you have of putting value on people that you think are worthwhile and devaluing those who you don't. As God, I'm stepping in here to show you what this looks like. He was trying to change how they took notice, like the Samaritan took notice, to see people differently. Because once we see people through God's eyes as created in his image, we see everything differently, which of course brings us to the movie Hook. Now, this is a scene that I've talked about before, but it's amazing. How many of you have never seen Hook? Okay, guys. Sunday homework, all right, step up. This is an amazing movie where Robin Williams does a phenomenal job of playing Peter Banning. Okay, Peter Banning, who we find out is who? Peter Pan, but he doesn't know that. What's his profession? A lawyer. Yes, he's left Never Neverland and he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. Now he's like this, this cutthroat, almost pirate-esque lawyer who's always on his cell phone. He doesn't have time for his family. I'm not going to spoil anything, but Captain Hook, and by the way, it's like 30 years old, so I'm not, I don't care if I'm spoiling something. Captain Hook goes and kidnaps his kids, brings them to Never Never Land to lure him there. Sure enough, Peter Banning goes to Never Never Land, and when he gets there, he comes across the Lost Boys. 
And the lost boys don't know who he is. They can't tell it's Peter Pan because he's old and fat. But the youngest of them see him. And the youngest of them, when they're looking at him, they see something that reminds them of someone. And it's when they're pushing Peter Banning's face into a smile that this youngest lost boy says, Oh, there you are, Peter. And the rest of the lost boys see him. He still doesn't get it, doesn't understand. He's starving to death. And he goes to dinner. He's excited about dinner. And he looks and he's disappointed because all the lost boys are eating nothing. They're empty bowls, empty plates. They're like, oh, this is delicious, yummy. And he's just like, have you guys lost your minds? There's no food here. Like, oh, sure there is. Look at this and look at this. And in a genius move, how this film was done, in one moment, all of a sudden, Peter Banning ceases being Peter Banning and all of a sudden regains the reality of seeing himself as Peter Pan. And he looks throughout the room and all of a sudden, the camera pans back and you see the entire table is filled with food. See, once he saw himself as Peter Pan, he saw everything else radically different. The why of why people are valuable is because they're created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God, but once you know that, you see everyone differently. We are no longer Peter Banning. We're walking through a world realizing that we are created in the image of God. That's the why. The way is a little bit more tricky because what Jesus describes is not simply that this Samaritan took notice of this guy, but he took notice and he did something. He actually engaged this guy in a compassionate, sacrificial, and intelligent way. Which is, again, it's, this is one of those things that the jaws of any of the, the people listening just continue to get lower and lower as Jesus is describing what he did for this person. That this guy, this Samaritan, not only takes notice of him, but he, he, mends, he takes care of his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He's not like, okay, well, I'll let like, some Jewish person's donkey carry this guy. He's like, no, he's going to be on my donkey. And, and he takes them to an inn and makes sure that he takes, he takes care of him. He gives him two denarius, two days wages. He gives him that and he says, listen, I got to go because I've got a business trip, but I'm coming back here to reimburse you anything that it costs to take care of my mortal enemy. The person that if he saw me first would have maybe kicked me when he saw me in the road. I'm going to come back here and pay for anything that it's required. And Jesus is telling this story to a people saying, this is my way. This is my way. That as someone who sees himself as created in the image of God, we see everyone else differently. That we're an advocate for everyone's every last heartbeat and everyone's every last breath. And I, could, I, I don't know if you, I don't know what system you're in, like if you're a Democrat or a Republican or you're an anarchist or whatever, or, or if you're whatever social group or whatever culture you find in or, or what you're, you're, you know, if you're like heart, like I'm Irish or, or you know, whatever, whatever your backdrop is. But Jesus has got a way of challenging whatever cultural system we most affiliate with. And he's been doing this for 2,000 years. No matter what political system you're in, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be challenged. And so we need to realize that we are first and foremost, we're, I mean, first and foremost, we're not Republicans or Democrats or independents. We're first and foremost not Americans. We're first and fo foremost citizens of a new kingdom that Christ has established that he is the king of. Amen? Okay, now that, and we can say amen, but I mean, that's, that's hard to live out because we have convictions with the platforms of the things that we see. So everything I'm going to say right here, it, it's going to challenge you because it's challenging to me. Okay? And so whether you're a Democrat or Republican, feel, get ready to be offended. 
Buckle up. We become an advocate for life. And let's just go all the way back to the earliest of life. We become an advocate for early life. Because, not because, again, we're Americans, Republicans, Democrats, but we're, we're advocates for the earliest of life because wherever we see human life, we, as those who know that we're created in the image of God, have to advocate for it. Um, 50 years ago, when Roe versus Wade was, was passed, we didn't have 3D sonograms. We didn't have ultrasounds that, that were able to help us see a child smiling back. But now that we have, we've steeped ourselves in science, we, we know what life is there. We know that by eight weeks, by eight weeks, a child, a fetus human baby inside is sucking their thumbs. At, by eight weeks, they're dreaming. By eight weeks, they respond to sound and they recoil from pain. So when the doctor's like taking like a blood sample, that little baby inside is like, stop it, stop it, and actually feels that. All major organs are functioning. A brain receives info. And again, the child has a fingerprint by eight weeks. It's, it's the first trimester. By 21 weeks, a baby can live outside of the womb with help. And, and here's the thing. Nearly, the thing that, that's heartbreaking is that nearly all of the one million abortions that take place each year happen after that. Now, here's the thing. We have women at our church who have had abortions. We've had, we have men at our church who've urged their girlfriends or their spouses to have abortions. And you may feel like that is the darkest thing in your life that you don't feel the liberty to share with anyone for fear of being judged. But you need to know that just like every other person in this room, that in Christ there is no condemnation. Because of what he's accomplished, we can say all of this that took place in my past, that happened, but I am liberated. Jesus took the payment of that. And now I can actually be someone who's walking with the liberty and freedom of someone who is innocent. And you are. And it's been so neat to walk with women in our church who've actually had to, you know, who've shared that with me. And to see the reality that they're now walking in because of Jesus. To see the reality that there are so many people in Scripture who did terrible things that found liberation, not in morality, not in their past, not in their track record, but in Jesus. So if that's your past, you need to know that you have liberation. You have welcome arms here because you're part of a story just like the rest of us. Part of the story that Jesus has redeemed. You actually can join in and be an advocate for every life, every last breath, even in spite of the past. Um, the truth is that of the a million um, abortions happen, very, very few happen because of rape. Like, like a, a fraction of a fraction happened because of that. In addition to that, um, one of the, the strongest arguments, I think, for being pro-choice is that, well, let's be honest, this isn't really a human life. It's a, it's a clump of cells. It's like a globally gloop of biology. It's not a human life yet. Um, it's, it's just a fetus. That's all it is. But if, if that's something that you believe, you actually would find those in the pro-choice movement strongly disagreeing with you. One uh, person in Salon, uh, her name is Mary Elizabeth Williams, she wrote an article on, so what if abortion ends life? I believe life starts at conception. So way back at the very beginning, not first trimester, like 
back at the very beginning. I believe that life starts at conception and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. She says in this, really, it was a really disturbing article to, to read. Um, she, re, she writes, I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I've never wavered for a moment in belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. Now, Mary and I totally agree on that. Okay, so Mary and I agree that this thing inside from conception is a human life. One of the strongest pro-choice people and someone who's pro-life, we are locked arms on that one. And that doesn't make me one less iota solidly pro-choice. She goes on to say, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. Okay, this is where Mary and I separate. All life is equal. There is equality for all life. That's civil rights for all people. Mary is making a case that even though this is a human, that it does not have rights. She agrees that it's a human, but she's saying all life isn't, and that means that some people have high, more rights than others, and that's good. She continues, that's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of all the non autonomous and or of trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her period always period here's the problem with that mary's right if we're not created in the image of god she's right on the money i mean all life is expendable and it really is whatever you want to do with it but the problem with that is that the way that that doesn't mesh with reality is this thing we know scientifically is not the woman's body. This little baby girl inside of a woman, this little baby girl has its own DNA. This little baby girl has its own fingerprint. This little baby girl has its own dreams, its own blood type. It's not the mother. It's inside of the mother. But this little baby girl, this little girl is somebody who has rights because she is inside of a mom but is still an individual in and of herself. And so as believers, what we do is we say, this is challenging and it's difficult. Are there people in absolutely precarious situations? Absolutely. So the church should be the ones that are helping people through ha having adoption. The church should be the one who are wrapping themselves around single moms, not just saying, yeah, abortion is wrong and walking away. That's a travesty. But the church is also the one who are advocating for every, every right of every individual, uh, of the rights of the life rights of everyone. That we're civil rights advocates for those who have no voice. That becomes part of our story. We are the people who are advocating for those with early life, but not only early life, challenged life. Because what happens when that baby is born? And what if that baby is born with special needs? What if that baby is deemed by the public as never having any capacity to bring anything socially to the world? Does that baby have any less value? If that baby is born with special needs, is it less valuable than your child who is born with all of its abilities and capacities? No, of course not, but it, it depends on who you ask about that. Um, famed uh, atheist Richard Dawkins um, got himself in a whole lot of trouble one time when he was responding to a tweet. Um, someone, they were talking about a 
a pro-life um, march in Ireland, I think. And somebody um, commented on that, that he was co making comments about it. And in your face, New Yorker said, I honestly don't know what I would do if I were pregnant with a kid with Down syndrome. That's a real ethical dilemma. But it wasn't to Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins says, in your face, New Yorker, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. If you, as a female, allow your child, if you were told that it had, is gonna have Down syndrome, deliver it, you're immoral. How dare you do that? His rationale is, when you do that, you're saying that you're going to have the burden for your whole life to take care of this. That's immoral. That thing is not going to do anything socially helpful or productive. He goes on to say, because he got a lot of backlash, <laughs> apparently I'm a horrid monster for recommending what actually happens to the great majority of Down syndrome fetuses. They are aborted. It was funny because some of the, the Twitter followers of Dawkins after this said, that's it, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm an agnostic. Because if an atheist means thinking like him, I'm no longer one of those people, which was kind of funny. But as they, the whole, the, the left went up in arms. How could you possibly say this? And he responded to them in a, in a blog by saying, listen, I'm, just, you, I'm not going to apologize for this because I, I need, I'm not going to apologize for approaching a moral philosophical question in a logical way. What I'm saying makes sense. If, if we are just biology, there is nothing special about you. There's something, nothing unique about you. But we want to live as best as we can. And if we could do anything for the future, we want to have as pure a species as possible. So the best thing we could do is to weed out all the imperfections, all the handicaps, all the challenges physically. If we, if we minimize and mitigate those people, then we'll have a purer race in the future. So if you're told that you're going to have, if you're going to have a child that's going to have Down syndrome, you should do your best to abort it. That's the moral thing to do. So we have a pure race. And here's the thing. Dawkins is right. He is absolutely right that that is the logical conclusion if there is no God. But if there is a God and scripture is correct and we actually take the Bible seriously, we agree with all the atheists who are upset about that. We just have a reason why we're upset. And the reason why is because we have intrinsic value because we're created in the image of God. My mom um, was told um, by the doctor that after my brother and I uh, were born um, in her third pregnancy that the baby that she was going to have um, was going to be um, severely underweight and that she should abort it. My mom said, what? Just because it's underweight? Like, yeah, well, it's severely underweight and it's probably going to have severe Down syndrome and it will never be a productive member of society. We encourage you to abort it. And my mom decided not to abort this baby in spite of the fact it was going to be born severely underweight, never a productive member of society, and have severe Down syndrome. And she gave birth to a nine-pound, five-ounce, sumo wrestler baby, my sister Sarah, who didn't have Down syndrome, and we wish that she was less of a productive member of society because she's always made us look bad. But what if the doctors were right? Would my sister have any less value? At our church, we realize that we have um, parents with kids with special needs who need extra help, and we realize that we're not where we want to be in that area. 
if you're someone who wants to like, like be a buddy of one of our kids, like when kids are in Echo, they're, they're learning about Jesus and everything. Um, if you want to be a buddy of a kid who has special needs but can't, just needs help, needs to have a one-on-one, I want to encourage you on your, in your program, there's um, just on this slip, just put your name and your contact information and then just put special needs at the bottom. Put this in the offering in just a few minutes and we'll get to you because we want to see people partnered up because we are people who are advocates for the life and the livelihood of everyone, including those who have a challenged life physically or mentally. Thirdly, we're not only uh, that, but we also step into diverse life. We have, as people who realize we're creating the image of God, we are advocates for the diversity of life. We're advocates for it. Now, Christians have not always been at the spearhead moments of this, uh, of, being, of being people who value others, uh, even if they're diverse. But some of the most amazing civil rights moments have come from those who have banked on the fact that we're creating the image of God. This guy named William Wilberforce, he was a Brit in the 1700s. And it, uh, he, uh, before he was, uh, became a Christian, he was totally cool with slave trade. It made economic sense. It was economically viable for, for Britain to go to Africa and get slaves and put them on the ship like this, like this depicts and bring them anywhere they wanted to make things happen. But when he became a Christian, all of a sudden he had a flip on that. And he, and he recognized that baking on the fact that he, People, all people, no matter what your color, no matter what your country, are creating the image of God, that that leads us to say we cannot do this, no matter how economically viable it was. A hundred years before America caught on, this Christian in Great Britain was advocating in Parliament against slave trade, and he got it. Almost a hundred years before before we, we... caught onto it in America. He got it, but he, and it wasn't in spite of his faith. It was because of his faith that he did that. Martin Luther King, historian Richard Wills in his Oxford University Press book on Martin Luther King said that King's use of the theological principle that humans are created in the Imago Dei and endowed with intrinsic worth was his primary appeal for civil rights. Wills writes, King contrasted the Judeo-Christian understanding of human worth with a secular Darwinian model. Man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons or a wisp of smoke from a limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God, made in his image, and therefore must be respected as such. King impressed upon our nation, Wills writes, a conscience of the principles upon which it was founded, that all men are created equal, and that that really means that all men, and it really means created, and created really means created. This principle, if true, as it surely is, cannot be selectively applied or systematically denied. If the biblical depiction of man is true, as indeed it is, it is true for all. Because God is our Father, we are all brothers. It was based on the reality of the image of God that led to that movement of civil rights. Early life, challenged life, diverse life, and even marginalized and threatened life. As we turn on our news, it's very easy for us to see things that are problems that are too big for us. But it's also very easy for us to respond from a place of our citizenship first and foremost in our country. And this is a complicated issue as far as Syrian refugees and all the other refugees. But we have to realize that when we look at these and we're listening to these reports, we are not simply talking about those people or that country. We're talking about people who are created in the image of God. Mothers, fathers, children, people who God loves. And we have a response to these people. And it should be different than the world's response to these people. 
We need to respond to them compassionately, sacrificially, and intelligently. And is that clean cut? No way. Is it a straightforward answer? Uh Uh-uh. But we need to realize that when we're telling people to go home, we need to realize that maybe they don't have a home to go home to. Which brings us to the uh, British Museum in London. Closing here. There's this cross. It was um, created um, from this artist, uh, Tuccio. See, in October of 2013, this boat um, crashed, or um, it, it, it fell apart on the coast of uh, Lampedusa, this island, and 355 people died. And when 155 people were rescued and salvaged, um, some of them Muslims, some of them Christians, they were fleeing from Somalia. And they made their way into Tuccio's church. And he recognizes a carpenter. He's not a politician. There's not much he can do. But he decided to go and get pieces of the wreckage of that boat and form crosses that he would give out to each of the families. To which some people said, well, hold on. Why are you making a cross? I mean, listen, not all these people who died or all these families are Christians. And he said, I think you've missed the point. The cross is a symbol of both suffering and hope simultaneously. It stands for that, and it stands alone in that regard. And it reminds me and my fellow Christians of what we do when people land on our shores and how we respond to them. You see, we follow Jesus. Jesus, who was the image of God, who walked through the valley and saw us, and he didn't pass by to the other side because we weren't his problem. He compassionately sacrificed his own life to give us life. And so as Christians, as people who not only are creating the image of God, but know it, all of a sudden we have the opportunity to stand against a culture that forms judgments on people based on whatever the majority thinks. That we as a people have an opportunity to stand against a culture that will give certain people value and worth, but other people not so much. Or only give people value and worth with those who agree with us. Instead, we could be the people who say, we are advocates for every breath, every heartbeat, because that person has created the image of God. And in so doing, we will watch and see the world hopefully follow suit and see the value that only God can give. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the fact that you've not only valued us, God, but you've called us into valuing others and seeing others with your eyes. Lord, every single one in this room, we have reasons why we draw lines for our own safety, for our own security. But God, I pray that you help us with our first impression, our first notice of people, not to see the things that contrast them with us, but instead see the commonality we share, which is the fact that that person is someone who's precious to you, created in your image. Let that be the first sentiment. And God, I pray that you let that move into our actions that we be advocates for all life, wherever we find it, wherever it's threatened, and that we will reflect your heart in this. Lord, for the offering that we're about to take, I pray that you help us make a significant impact on this community and this world for your glory, that this message, this good news of how you see us will continue to go out to the world, and we will give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.